<laughs> Thanks. <laughs> it's actually interesting that you mentioned my wife's blog. She, uh, she, she has a blog at Seagull Fountain. And, you know, for a stay-at-home mother, it's been like a tremendous outlet for her to reach out and just use her mind and interact with all kinds of other people. So, anyway. Uh, I was asking Brother Allen before before I came up here, kind of what the students thought about technical writing, or what kind of questions they had. What did he, what did he want me to focus on? And he, he, this is the picture he painted for me. Well, he didn't paint this picture, but this, this is the idea. He said students kind of have this question. You know, can I really be happy in a career as a technical writer? You know, I'll never know until I try it, but once I try it, it may be too late to go back and try something else. And I think this is a question that, I don't know if you have, but maybe you've had. You're not sure if technical writing would be a fulfilling career or if it would just be this drudgery, dreadful job that you hate and you just go to because you know that you can at least get a paycheck. So has this question ever kind of crossed your mind as you're contemplating a career in technical writing? You can raise your hand. Oh, good. Okay, so he's not too off target. So I think that the reason this question comes up is because a lot of times students' ideas of what technical writing is is kind of far from the reality of what an actual technical writer does. A lot of times people think that technical writing is kind of like a snooze fest of writing click this, select that, and over on the left you, you have this idea well, this is what the, the little diagrams are depicting. People think technical writing is just sitting down and writing, okay, to program your TiVo, do this, actually not even TiVo, whatever, to <laughs> assemble your bicycle. First, screw this bolt on, then this, and select that, and click this. A lot of people think that's what technical writing is, it's just these this is writing instructions day in and day out and how do you do how do you do this and a b c d e f will get you through it and that's it so how many of you think technical writing basically consists of that boring procedural writing if you do then then maybe this this will be good i'm trying what i want to do is try to open your eyes up to another side of it that's a lot more cerebral that's more engaging it makes you think more analytically. Because if that's what you think technical writing is, then yeah, I would have second thoughts about going into that as a career. You know, if that's all you did all day was sit there and write instructions, then yeah, it would be boring and you'd be falling asleep and regretting your, regretting your decision. But really, technical communication encompasses a lot of interesting fields. Um, it encompasses all this stuff on the right. Technical writing is only a small sliver of the pie. There's instructional design, uh, user experience, content strategy, content management, community and content curation, information design, um, editing, social media, audiovisual. So all these are different aspects of technical writing that you can do. And I wanna kinda get into a few of those just to give you a better idea of what it's all about. If you were to kind of map, you, I doubt you can read that small print. If you can, congratulations to your eyesight. Uh, but basically, a day in the life of a technical writer doesn't involve that much writing. So if you were to break down kind of how much time you spend doing actual writing, if you were to start at 
and end at four, that's about all the time you would spend writing in one day. So and a, a lot of students ask, you know, is this writing going to, is, is a career in technical writing going to ruin my literary style? You know, is it going to make me this boring writer? Really, you don't spend that much time writing. And, and what is it that you spend the rest of your time doing then? That's what I want to try to get into. And I want to show some real examples of stuff that hopefully makes it a lot clearer. So now I've got a bunch of slides here. But um, one thing that you'll find as you, as you get into an IT department is that writing is not very valued. People kind of look at writing as a skill that anybody can do. And it's a sad sort of reflection, and it's not necessarily true. In fact, it's really frustrating that people believe it. But people see writing as kind of this commodity that, oh, you can outsource that, or you can have the intern write this, or you can, uh, you know, let's, let's have uh, John the janitor write this up. It's kind of like that. And it's, it's a little bit frustrating because most people, when they say, when they hear, oh, technical writer, he's good at writing, we'll have him write stuff. Really, it goes, goes much more beyond that. So let's, let's take an example and look at one of these facets of the technical writer's world, information architecture. So, and I have an example to try to illustrate this. What's your local store around here that you buy stuff in? What, what, what? Reams, Walmart, Realms? Brahms? Brolems? Okay. Wow, I never heard of that one. So if you were to try to find cream of coconut, where would you find it in Brolems? Where? You wouldn't, you wouldn't find it? Just give up? Maybe by the Indian food section, the Thai food. There's like a little, yeah. a little tiny section. On the shelf. You know exactly where it is, the bottom shelf. right? So what exactly do you do with cream of coconut? Are you sure you're not confusing that with coconut milk? Could be. <laughs> <laughs> so if, as you kind of think about this, this is a sort of question that an information architect might explore, although not necessarily with a supermarket, but with information. How do you make a, pro in, in a supermarket setting, how do you make a product findable by the users? How do you make it, how do you organize it so that when people think, oh, I'd like cream of coconut, they know exactly where to go. Apparently, this is used in smoothies a lot. A former Orange Julius employee told me they use this as their secret ingredient, right? But it's also used in desserts, possibly Thai food. Um, it's used in maybe cakes. So there's lots of possibilities. Do you put this with the cake? Do you put this in the ethnic aisle with Thai food? Do you put this next to coconut milk or these separate products? Do you put this? Um, how do you group it? I mean, in general, how do you group stuff in your supermarket? Do you group it by like food type? Like, a, like a, the food pyramid, we'll put all the vegetables here and the fruits here, and the dairy here. And they kind of do that a little bit, right? Or do you group things by what people are baking? You think, oh, they're going to bake a cake, so they're going to need all the ingredients kind of right around there. Or do you group it by ethnicity? People go in and say, yes, I'm going to be baking Mexican food tonight, I'll go down the Mexican aisle. Or Thai food, I'll go down the Thai aisle, or whatever, or Asian aisle. So how do you arrange things? So um, with, with information, it's the same, same concept, but a little different. So in this example here, one of the things I'm working on is um, 
instructions for how to put internet into meeting houses. And let's go to the site there. So first of all, let's, who's a state clerk? Come on, I got to have a state clerk in here. You are? Really? I was a ward clerk. Was or still a? Was. No. Anybody a current ward clerk? Okay. It would have been, been helpful for a certain login, but that's all right. <clears throat> so let's say you're called as a state clerk, and stake president says, James, I would like you to figure out how to put internet in each of the ward buildings. What do you do? Where do you go for instruction? How do you find that initial set of instructions? Look for the handbook. It's not in the handbook. <laughs> Where's my handbook? <laughs> We've, we're in a very handbook-oriented culture. People like handbooks. Well, if you go to MH Tech, this is this new wiki, and and it's actually just part of the L, the tech.lds.org wiki. But it's so buried in this wiki that you'll never find it by going to this URL. So they made like a vanity URL that redirects to this URL called MH Tech. So you come in here and you think, oh, okay. Now, how do I organize this page? This page is supposed to be like this go-to point for all things technology related with meeting houses. But here, you're, you're, you're immediately, you immediately have a challenge. Okay, so we can put broadcast stuff in one column and internet stuff in the other. But really, to broadcast, you do need to have internet. So they are kind of interrelated. Um, where on this page might, what, which link would you click to figure out what you need to do to start getting internet into your buildings. Yes. Yes. Okay. So internet connectivity. So not only is the location important, but there's something to do with the name. So internet, right, is the same name. But um, if you go back to the slide here, sometimes uh, engineers like to call things by names that users don't use. For example, I'm working with a network engineer, and he's trying to figure out the demarcation points for the ISP to put the data into the, into the buildings. And he keeps using this term, demarcation point. And I'm like, what, why do you, is this something users are gonna, going to say? No. Demarcation? What is it? Basically, it's where they put the internet jack from the internet service provider, right? But, but the, the name determines how people are going to find it. Nobody's going to search for demarcation point. They're going, to want to, they're going to want to know how they install the internet, basically, or how they get internet connect connectivity. Even within each of these groups, um, there's kind of this navigation on the right. And initially, the project manager said, you know what, for each of these subcomponents, firewall networking, we want to have benefits, policies, requirements repeated for each of these components. I said, are you crazy? That's like a policy for each one of these things and a benefit and a requirements page, we're gonna have eight times, we're gonna have like 40 pages of different information. And it starts to get more kind of convoluted like that. So as a technical writer, one of your first questions is, you know, how do I make this content findable by users? Same, same scenario with the supermarket. You know, How do I make it findable? Of course, in the supermarket, they're also trying to ask another question. How can I persuade people to buy it? And organizing things by topic doesn't really work the whole, the whole time. Um, for example, here, there's not a lot of topics. You know, four, five, six main topics. It's not a big project. But if you go back to uh, like a typical help file, 
you can have tons of folders on the left with subfolders and sub subfolders and you find that the, the topic you're looking for is like three levels deep. If you've ever tried to learn a robust program like Photoshop or Illustrator, you know that there's a lot of help topics. And if you're looking for something, good luck, right? So this idea of just kind of having groups um, logically related doesn't really work. And if you go to sites like Hulu.com or something, you notice they don't necessarily group all the television shows by genre. They have different kinds of groupings. They show you like the latest releases, uh, most recently added, most popular. You can sort by clips. You can sort by full episodes. So there's different facets that you can navigate into the content with. Uh, so kind of expanding beyond this topic-based setup, you, you, you try to figure out, well, what are the, the different angles that users could find or, or seek this information by? And, and how can I impose or insert those into, into the way people navigate this? All right, another aspect of technical writing that a lot of people don't think about, right, is information design. So let's go back to this example of Meeting House Internet. So you read through this, and right now it's just a bunch of text. Uh, this is still in development. Um, it's kind of exciting to be involved in this because I know where it's going, but a lot of people don't yet. So anyway, um, there's not much text here. You scan down, there's a big table, not very interesting looking. Text, 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 text. When people look at this, this is about how they read it. You know, they, <laughs> they scan it and nothing really jumps out at them. And there's nothing more boring than a manual that basically has no visual engagement, no pictures. So one of the tasks of an information designer is to try to help people see the information. Because we're very visual people. Even from, if you have children, you know that they color immediately, right? They, they almost come, they almost arrive with a little crayon in their hands. Because they love to color, they're very visual. And you show them some video and bam, they're, they're very mesmerized by it. And we're the same way in the sense that we're, we're visual learners for the most part. And yet, when people think of instructions, they often think of click this, select that, do that. You know, they don't have this, this visual engagement. So I want you to, wow, you've all got note, notepads in front of you. Um, I want you to try to do something in about three minutes. Okay, so one of the concepts that may be new to people, I'll go to the firewall one, because it's a little, a little more fun. The concept of a firewall. So I'll tell you what it is, and then I want you to illustrate the idea. So a firewall is something that apparently every meeting house has to have, um, and yet a lot of people don't have it hooked up correctly. So the firewall does two things. Mainly it controls network traffic controls who goes into your meeting house network and what users can do within that network, like how they go to the internet. So basically it's gonna filter out the ability for users to go to pornography and gambling sites, right? It, it will block those sites. And it will also block malicious hackers and malware and other bad stuff from coming in, right? So I explained that in the first, I don't know, one of these, I explained what it does. But obviously, and you have a picture of the firewall, which looks like it could be anything 
right? <laughs> we could have put anything there and people would have just nodded their head. Doesn't really illustrate a concept. You don't get any ideas from that other than it looks kind of mysterious. Why don't you take three minutes and try to draw the concept of what a firewall does based on what I explained. Keeps the bad guys out, keeps the good guys from going into bad sites. You don't have you won't have to like hold this up or anything, don't worry. I just want, want you to experience the idea of the idea that writing is more than just words. And you can combine words in this. I'm not saying it has to be completely visual, but just kind of combine text with some kind of images. while you're drawing. So there's lots of, of content about like visual language. In fact, I'm just reading this one by this guy, Robert Horn. And he, he's just talking about um, visual language throughout history and how it relates to philosophy and things like that. And, and there's a whole like field of people who are information designers. Uh, and not only would they kind of illustrate concepts, but they would take other things, like for example, if I go back to that previous page, we had this boring chart of basically, I mean, you really had to read it to figure out what it's about. But they would look at this and say, well, how can I depict this in a way that's going to be more visually clear and interesting to users? Um, what this chart is, is, is basically uh, you have to try to figure out how much bandwidth you're going to consume in your meeting house based on how much you're using the internet whether for MLS, if you have a family history center, or if you're going to be broadcasting stuff or doing video conferencing. And the idea is that you add it all up and you realize, holy smokes, I need a lot more bandwidth than I think. Um, but it's arranged in a very dull way, uh, a, a basic table. So an information designer may graphically depict something. Um, I was trying to, in this little slide, kind of show the idea that, hey, as you have more users, your speed's going to slow down. So don't think that you're going to flip on wireless internet access in your chapel, give everybody the password, and expect to still get 8 megabits download speed. It's not going to happen. But it's a lot more interesting to kind of see the idea than to simply read about it. All right, so hopefully you had fun drawing a little bit. It, it, use, it uses another part of your brain than, than the writing a lot of times, although they're both creative act, acts. Any questions about this? Does anybody want to show their drawing? Hold it up. Okay, you just keep it. Why don't you send it to me? <laughs> Another aspect of technical writing is usability and user experience. So on the right or on your left, you have what? What is that? It's an iPod, right? They're amazingly easy to, to draw, by the way. <laughs> On the right, I just have my own Frankenstein concoction of what might be a, a knockoff that would be a usability nightmare. So <laughs> um, the idea of, a, of usability 
is pretty simple. You want to make a product as simple to use as possible. There's people nowadays don't like, they don't like or expect to have to read a manual to figure out how to use your product, at least for mass consumer products like this. But as a technical writer, you may think, well, this seems like it's more like the product design. You know, how does this relate? And a lot of times they bring in technical writers at the last minute to document what is rather than what should be, which is really unfortunate. So if you insert yourself early on in the process, which you should always try to, um, you become the first user of a product. And the engineers who are creating this, the programmers, they, they work in non-human terms. If you speak, if you look at their code, it's not human, right? It's like all this gibberish. And yet when they try to, if, if there's no interaction designer and you actually have the developer try to create an interface, usually the person brings over all these non-human terms or just doesn't have the user in mind. So as a first user of the product, you can contribute lots of feedback. So let's give an example of how this plays out. So one of the things about the new LDS.org site is this calendar business. So if you go to Tools, Calendar, and we had to intercept it with some kind of FAQ, but just click Continue to Calendar. And here's where I really wanted to see. Nobody's a state clerk again? Nobody's a ward, ward clerk? Man, it's all tied into your login. And unfortunately, there's no like external test site where I can log in with other stuff. So you just see what I see as a regular user. So uh, this is the new calendar. How many of you have seen this? None of you have seen this? Oh, this is kind of exciting. So the church is working on this calendar to replace the existing calendar. And this one's a lot more Google-like. Google so on the right, you have stuff that says subscribed calendars and subscribed locations. So the most common task that a user would do is he or she would come in here and say, I would like to create an event for Thursday, let's say Wednesday at 9 p.m. for Elders Quorum Basketball, <laughs> something, I don't know, or it, Relief Society Enrichment. And I want to make sure, we'll do it at 7 p.m., I want to make sure nobody else is using the Relief Society room at that time. So I want to schedule that building. What do you do? Okay, we've got a create event. And, all right, we'll do the Elders Quorum example, <laughs> since I don't have any other calendars. We'll call this, uh, we'll call this basketball. Uh, no, let's call this, what should we call it? Mm. We'll, we'll start a book club night, all right? <laughs> all right, so here you can, you, you can choose a start and end. But now, how do I make sure that there's no other conflict going on at 7 p.m. where I want it? How do I, how do I know that? Check for conflicts. Interestingly, it's checking for conflicts even though I haven't specified a location, um, <laughs> which seems kind of weird to me because like there's no conflicts. Well, what does check for conflicts really mean, I guess? I guess it's checking for time conflicts as well as like location conflicts too. But over here, um, you select a location, and the word location may not really be right because all I want is a room, and there's no locations, darn it. If this had been set up, there'd be like a list of locations. And then you click check for conflicts, and unfortunately, I'm not going to have any conflicts. 
But uh, it opens up, and now I see this big red bar. And, and you know, it's a little confusing because usually red means danger or like you did something wrong or, you know, something's not right. But that's not really what's, what it's telling me. It's telling me there are no conflicts. So I can then save my event. That that's, doesn't seem like that difficult of a, of a task, right? The part I really wanted to show was the person who sets up the locations because that gets a lot more complicated. You have... Um, this whole concept of, of having things reserved. So if I, even if I save this, right, I've got it right there. But you can have like reservations so that people can't assign things at those specific times. So if this had been set up, and if I had a test access, I could show you when that's set up. But if it had been set up, there may be an event already scheduled at this time, but you wouldn't actually know it until you tried to click check for conflicts. And you wouldn't really be able to see it unless you chose subscribe locations and, and chose to see like what sort of resources and locations had already been reserved. And as you're going through this, typically what you do as a technical writer is look at a lot of times the language of this and say subscribe locations, what does that really mean? What do you guys think subscribe locations means? This is one of those engineering speak type of terms where they think, oh, you know, this makes perfect sense to us, but when you ask a user, they look at that and they're like, huh? And, and this is what a lot of people don't realize with usability is that the interface is mostly text. If you were to take away the names from all these buttons, take away the names over here, you'd still have a calendar, so you'd probably be able to figure a lot of it out. But by and large, in almost every interface, text drives everything. And if words aren't clear, if they're engineer speak, um, it, it cuts down on the usability. And, and so your, your job would be to try to craft the language. Now you can go beyond that and say, well, not only is it the wrong word, it's really a complicated workflow. We need to simplify this. A lot of times they'll come back and say, we can't simplify it because it's too complicated, yada, yada, yada. But basically, that's just a whole component of technical writing that's actually a lot of fun because there's almost a kind of vindictive nature about it. If you get excluded from a product early on and they have the interaction designer and the project manager craft the language of the interface so you don't get it until two months before release, it's fun to go through it, point out all the like grammar errors, just poor word choice, ambiguous meaning, and just edit it like, a, like you're grading a student essay. <laughs> and give it back to them and then they, they kind of catch on to the idea that, hey, maybe we should have the, the writer look at this before we move it too far. Most interaction designers, are they worship Apple, so they love simplicity and design that's intuitive. Um, and that's really what you should strive for in information products as well, something really clear. So this is another aspect, instructional design. If you give somebody a big, long reference manual, most likely the concepts are just gonna go right by them. The instructional designer asks, how can I help users learn this material? So it's not so much about you know, what is this core knowledge people need to know, what's the information I need to gather, but how can I transfer that into the person? And there's lots of kind of principles of, of learning that you use all the time in your courses. Can you imagine taking a writing course and the instructor gets up and says, 
and just lectures for the whole hour about writing principles. And then you go and you don't do anything. You come back, he or she lectures again the whole semester. It would be terrible, right? You wouldn't, it, it would be hard to learn a lot in that class. Instead, what happens? What, the instructor gives you assignments. You have to go home and do them. The, the instructor asks questions. The instructor kind of takes you through different levels, perhaps, where you don't start off writing a master's thesis. You start off with little short 200-word assignments and moves you up. So instructional design is this. It's trying to figure out the best way to engage users so that they learn. So right now, um, let's come back to this meeting house internet. What's the best way to help new stake technology specialists learn this stuff? Do we just throw them to the wiki and say, read this, figure it out? No, it's, it's going to be boring. They're not going to read it. They're gonna, or they're going to have questions that just are the same material as, as is covered here. They're just not reading it, so they don't know. So what would you do? What would, you, what would be a good technique to try to help them kind of learn this material? OK, simple diagram. So bring this whole visual component to it. YouTube clip. Like, I mean, if you're trying to put internet into a certain area, like how to do it in a video would be good. Yeah. And in fact, I was sitting that we have some, some instructional designer people on this project. So I'm not really acting in this role, just sort of advising them. And we came up with this idea of basically a narrator who walks you through it in the actual setting of a meeting house, kind of like an expert narrator. Um, they compared it to this old house or like some, you, you ever go to uh, YouTube and look for Bob Vila clips. You're trying to figure out how to do home repair, right? And you've got Bob Vila telling you how to kick your carpet or stretch your carpet, you know, with a kicker. And uh, so, so you've got somebody like narrating. And they said, yeah, we want, we want somebody who's, who, who knows what they're talking about, not just an actor reading a script and has no idea, you know, plug this cable in here. He has no idea what he's doing. But, um, this idea of having somebody in the setting, conversationally speaking, uh, and walking users through it seems right on target. So we'll see if that actually happens. Um, apparently, it's a lot of effort <laughs> to, to get that done. But, but um, that's one way that you can help people learn. I was actually having, having lunch with a guy from Snagit. Do you guys know Snagit, the product? It's the easiest graphic product that you can find uh, to, to create screenshots and other kind of graphics. And he said that his role at TechSmith, is the company that makes it, is to try to help people learn Snagit, to ensure that people figure out how to, how to use it. And he was like, well, I don't really know. You know what's my best strategy? And he, he had this idea of this blended learning model where they, they, I can't remember what they do, but they ended up, they would do like a webinar or something else. And then he, he brought up this whole idea of karate. And in karate, you go through levels, right? You don't just, I mean, part of the motivation is that you start out with one level, and you climb to the next, and then you go to the next. And that could be like a learning model where you start out basic, and then you move people to another level with more advanced information, and you keep feeding them so that they become power users eventually. Um, so anyway, these were his questions and, and his deliberations, and that was his focus. There's, there's uh, another one that's kind of interesting that's now like the biggest buzzword in, in TechCom now, content strategy. And this is a fancy way of trying to say, 
how can we get good content? So if you come to new.lds.org again, this is my favorite example. <laughs> and you look for stuff about serving in the church. You realize that there's no content here. <laughs> Coming soon. And this is, a, I, I don't know how, I'm not really that involved in this project. But it's an example where maybe the people got a little bit um, ahead of, uh, they, they started to do the design before they had the content. And the content strategist says, wait a minute, that's totally backwards. It's kind of like designing a package to send something before you know what the product is that you're sending. Like how could you possibly know the shape or what kind of, whether you, know you need a strong box or a weak box, you, you can't. And so a lot of times people will throw the designer on a new web redesign and they'll spend all kinds of time trying to think up worrying about the gradients and the image sizes and whether we're going to have print and chair features on the right and how we're going to do that. And they forget that the reason people go to any site is for the content. It's for the, the text, the audio, video, the images, and the core message of what it's saying. You know, what is there? That's what the content strategist is trying to improve. So we had this kind of situation with um, the tech.lds.org site. On the front page, you have content. Um, there's a newsletter, there's another newsletter, changing our old ways, announcing the LDS Tech IDE, another newsletter. And the other day I was sitting down with the guy who is like the community manager over this, and I said, look, you know, I wanna help you get better content on here. What are we trying to achieve with this site? What do we want users to do? And ultimately, this site is for the community to come together and help on projects. Kind of like in the olden days where people would get together and help build temples. Well, now we don't really need that, right? We don't need members to go contribute a day of their time to go build a temple. Most of us wouldn't know even what to do. Uh, instead, we need people to contribute some time, little time, writing software. And so how do we encourage and, and motivate people to do that? There's all kinds of programmers all over the world. There's quality assurance testers, interaction designers, technical writers who want to get involved. So we decided that the content on this page should focus on what the church is doing with community projects in a, and focus it in a way that's going to kind of intrigue people, interest them, help them get motivated. A content strategist would also kind of try to figure out, well, what format should this be in? Should this be text? Should this be podcasts? Should this be video clips? How frequently should we publish this information? How should we write it ourselves or get community members to write it? So all these questions are in the domain of content strategy, and it's you know, a huge part of what you do. Any questions, by the way? I'll come back to that in a minute. I only have 10 more minutes, is that right? I better get cracking here. So I already covered this audiovisual one a little bit, so I'm going to go back past that. Um, and I briefly touched on this. This is a new role that I'm trying to play and not doing a very good job of it. But more and more, people are coming to the realization that when you have a product, um, trying to get all the information written by one person from one vantage, vantage point who's probably not even a user of the product, it's really difficult. 
So with that meeting house internet, I'm not a stake technology specialist. I, in fact, I have, uh, except for one site visit, I've never seen the upstairs of a chapel. Did you know that chapels have a second floor where you can walk around? That's where, well, the newer ones do. I've never really been up there. I don't know how to do this, right? So I can try to interview network engineers. I can interview users to try to find out what questions they have. But ultimately, there's tons of stake technology specialists all over the world who are going to be implementing this, and they'll have all kinds of insights, questions, and, and maybe tricks and, and tips that I will never be able to tap into. So the wiki model accommodates this, or some kind of collaborative platform. And trying to figure out how you coordinate information from wide groups of people and put it on a site that people can access without it being a big traffic jam or some just content mess is really difficult. I actually have a, a listserv of about 60 technical writer volunteers who just want to, um, you know, they want to volunteer their services. But I don't really know how to like engage them. I, I, I say, look, we need quick reference guides. And I actually got two people to contribute quick reference guides. But one of them wasn't really that good. And the other one was okay, but it wasn't, you know, stellar. And so, you know, how do, I, how do I manage that information and edit it and put it, where do I put it? Like, those are the kind of questions that you'll be asking, you know, as you dip into community kind of management and collaboration. So, let's come back to that initial question. Um, if I go into technical writing, will I be happy? And, and will it be too late to change directions if, if I later find that, that to be the case? Well, first of all, if all those previous questions, those previous angles that I was kind of covering, don't interest you at all, then yeah, maybe technical writing isn't a career path that you want. But if you do find that you know some of those questions about findability, usability, uh, design, if they do kind of interest you, technical writing could really be a career that you find fulfilling or engaging. The second part of uh, this question is about changing courses is something that is really a myth. People think that once they go down this path, they're going to be in kind of this prison where they're trapped as a technical writer forever. And that's so not the case. It's more of like a door that opens other doors. Um, you could maybe go in as a technical writer and then transition into e-learning. Um, you could transition into marketing and communications. Human factors. This is the this is the name of the discipline that studies usability. So, while all the I mentioned at the beginning that technical writing kind of touches on usability and information architecture and information design, even marketing and audiovisual, you can obviously go much f deeper into those uh, into those side disciplines. You can become you know an, an audiovisual engineer. In fact, I was mentioning this uh, earlier this morning to somebody. Um, one of your graduates who was in tech or in professional writing, uh, she got a job at the church and she initially started out doing documentation for the welfare department, you know, writing manuals, meeting with subject matter experts all day long. And my impression is that it wasn't that exciting, right? But then things suddenly changed and that project ended for whatever reason. And she's now in like the audiovisual visual department doing stuff for them. And this is how technical writing is. You may, you may find yourself, um, doing some kind of instruction one day, and the next day you're managing the SharePoint site for the entire company. Um, so think of it, think of it as a, uh, a, 
a series of possibilities rather than a trap of some kind. There's really no single path in technical writing. So if you look at this maze, there's lots of different ways to get from one end to the other. And, and that's how technical writing is. Like people, people, people approach it or they, they enter the field with backgrounds in anthropology or Spanish or just no background at all really. Like they're just tech savvy. Um, they, you, you don't have to have a master's in anything. Uh, it's helpful, right? If you have a master's in like tech comm or something, that's great. But by and large, uh, because what you do is so varied and it's just different analytical parts uh, of your mind here, it's not as if there's one specific training that leads to it. So this comes back to the idea of having multiple doors. Um, you go in one door, let's say you start out in project management and find that you hate being a project manager, you can morph into technical writing or, or vice versa. In fact, I used to know a technical writer she started out as a technical writer and she was so thorough, and such a careful thinker, she would annotate these project, um, project charter documents that kind of outline the project and its plan. She would annotate them so carefully with questions that the people in her group said, look, uh, we want you to be a project manager because you really like think through this more carefully than anybody else. So she switched into that. So in this slide, <laughs> I'm still kind of coming back to this question, will it make me happy? Um, you got a guy over here daydreaming on the left, thinking, oh, you know, teaching is going to be awesome. But in reality, you grade so many student essays, and it's so like degrading and demoralizing that finally you just like at your knees hoping for mercy. Um, <laughs> or if you think, oh, I want to be an editor, a brilliant manuscript, but in reality you're reading like 19th century geology proceedings of Texas. You're thinking, oh, this is not what I thought. And uh, <laughs> careers are kind of that way. <laughs> Even if you become an astronaut, you spend 90% of your time in meetings, right? You're not up there walking around in space. And um, in fact, when I was a student, I thought I wanted to be a teacher. Or, or actually, I thought I wanted to write, like, write articles for a magazine. And so, so I uh, kind of pursued that path. I got a BA in English and then I, I wasn't ready to kind of go out into the world, so I got a master or an MFA in creative writing. And then I, I thought, man, I, I, what can I do? Um, I, I could try to find a writing job, but uh, I had a family, right? I had one kid. So I needed something more financially sustainable. So I became a teacher, and that's actually where I met Brother Allen, um, teaching at the American University in Cairo. It was for two years teaching writing. I realized that I didn't really like teaching. <laughs> I would much rather be the one writing than, than kind of like observing and coaching writing. Um, and I, as a student, I was kind of an editor for a while on the, uh, one of the journals, BYU Studies or something. You know, at first it sounded really exciting, but in reality, uh, I was indexing some, some journal articles uh, some former mission president's talks or something like that, which was okay, but it was just kind of very dry and not something I could really do for extended periods of time without just like needing a break. Um, and finally, you know, I, I was, uh, I, after teaching, I became a copywriter. Uh, I went to Florida and I said, look, I, I'm a good writer. I can write for any situation, you know. So I got this job as nutrition 
and health company called Body Health, which was a startup and is still a startup. It's never really taken off. And, you know, instead of all these cool projects, right, their main product was a protein pill. I was like, great, you know, I don't, they wouldn't even give me them free. So I had, no, I had no vested interest in this, right? And yet I was writing press releases and radio pitches and marketing copy, you need this, you know, it was for triathletes really, which I'm not a triathlete, so maybe I wasn't the right user. But it really didn't sink in and pay was really bad. It was like $32,000 a year, which is nothing. And um, so after that, I finally, you know, I'd, I'd heard all my life, well, not all my life, I'd, I'd had this really bad experience as an undergrad about technical writing. The, the person who presented it just kind of showed it in a really boring light. It was about formatting phone books, and I thought, man, I don't want to ever become this person. And so I, um, I, I just resisted it, and Brother Allen said, well, I don't really know him by Brother Allen, I know him by Josh. So Josh said, um, you know, you would be a perfect fit for technical writing. I said, whatever. But finally, you know, financially, I said, look, I need, I need a good job. Why don't I try it? So I got a job as a, as a technical writer in a financial firm with a lot of other technical writers. And it opened my eyes to something. It was actually kind of fun to, have my, to get my hands on technology, to actually be able to explore a software application on my own, um, to be able to be in complete control of how I publish the content. As a copywriter, I could write in Notepad and give the copy to the person. But as a technical writer, I got to learn help authoring tools. I got to explore graphics programs. I got to learn SharePoint. Um, I got to be in control of not only, only the publication of the content, but the delivery. And um, I found that this combination of like the creative writing skills with technology skills, bringing them together was really engaging. And it didn't dry up my, my time to write. I still write a ton on my blog. I have a lot of creative energy. Because as I mentioned in the beginning, you really only spend about an hour and a half of your day, maybe, or less, doing actual writing. The rest of the time, you're gathering information, you're making usability, usability suggestions, right? You're, you're exploring ways to increase findability, to illustrate concepts. You're doing much more than just writing click this, select that. So we are out of time. But uh, there's a panel of question and answers coming up. So I invite you to go to that. And if you have any questions here, I'll probably just let you come up afterwards. So thank you. And everyone, please. Oh, yeah, let's, let's talk.